Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can get access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is David Chalmers. David is a professor of philosophy and neuroscience at NYU, as well as the co-director of NYU's Center for Mind, Brain, and Consciousness. David just released a new book called Reality Plus, which we'll discuss here. Uh, The topics include whether we're living in a simulation, the progress that's been made in virtual reality, whether virtual worlds count as real, whether people would and should choose to live in a virtual world, many classic questions in the philosophy of mind, and more. So without further ado, David Chalmers. Okay, David Chalmers, thanks so much for coming on my show. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. So I've been a fan of your writing for a while. I was a philosophy undergrad at Columbia, where I graduated almost two years ago now. And um, I was very interested in questions of consciousness. So obviously your name came up a lot in my reading. And um, I'm really excited to discuss your new book, Reality Plus, which makes lots of interesting and controversial arguments that are also, I think, accessible to people that aren't necessarily totally steeped in this, in this realm already. And it also does a good job of covering a lot of the major debates in philosophy going back thousands of years, like how do we know what we know? Is the world real? And uh, how do we live the good life? And, and all of that kind of thing. So first of all, just congrats on this book. It's a real accomplishment. And um, it's an honor to have you on. Great. Well, um, thanks. I'm glad you, glad you liked the book. Yeah, I tried to write a book that anyone could read and that would at the same time be on, that would give people an introduction to philosophy, but at the same time would be on the cutting edge of a whole lot of issues about both about technology and about, say, reality more generally. So I'm hoping it's something that will interest a lot of people. Before we get into the book, can you give people a little sense of who you are, how you came to care about questions like what's the source of consciousness and the, the possibilities of virtual reality and whether we're living in a simulation, all of these questions? How did you become the person that cares about these questions? Yeah, I started out long ago in Australia. I grew up in Sydney and Adelaide in Australia. I grew up mostly as a math and science geek. In high school, I was into all the, uh, the math and physics and computer science that uh, you could be into. I did get turned on to computers at a pretty early age. I remember <laughs> learning to program when I was about 10 years old, started playing my first uh, computer games around that point. In the book, I tell the story of playing Colossal Cave Adventure, which was actually one of the first ever virtual world video games, totally text-based, around 1976 when I was 10 years old. I went on with, um, I went on with math. I did a first degree. I got partway through a, uh, a second degree at Oxford doing math. But somewhere along the way, I got really interested in, in philosophy and especially in, in consciousness, the subjective experience of the mind and the world, what it feels like from the inside to have a mind. And this is partly because, you know, math and physics these days, okay, they're, they're great subjects, but they're relatively well understood. I used to think, wouldn't it have been so cool 
to have been um, a mathematician three, four hundred years ago when all this stuff was so ill understood or a physicist. And I thought, well, where, what is the thing today that we really do not understand at all, but which is really, really important in our lives and in the universe? And that, it seemed to me, was consciousness. Yeah, we are beginning to understand the brain a little bit from the outside as a giant machine made up of all these neurons interacting. We're getting to understand some aspects of intelligence. But the question, why should all this be accompanied by conscious experience? Why doesn't all this processing go on totally without consciousness? That's like some kind of pure machine. That question, I thought, is one that we really don't have an answer to. And yet later on, I started calling this the hard problem of consciousness, explaining how it is that processes in the brain could give you subjective experience. Anyway, but that's just always seemed to me to be about the biggest mystery in the universe and one that maybe one day we can try and tackle. And I ended up, it's a long story, but I ended up moving into philosophy and cognitive science so I could think about that problem. Ended up doing a PhD at Indiana University of all places with uh, Douglas Hofstadter, who had written mm -hmm. books like Gödel Escherbach and The Mind's Eye that I'd read as a teenager. And that turned out to be a great place to get a uh, get kind of a foundation in thinking about the mind, thinking about AI, and thinking about philosophy. I ended up writing a PhD thesis on the problem of consciousness that turned into a book on consciousness, the conscious mind. And yeah, I guess that got me off and running at least. So a lot of places we could start. And um, I guess we'll just start by sort of summarizing the three questions that your book is trying to answer. And you call this the knowledge question, uh, the reality question, and the value question. So I guess let's start with the knowledge question. And this will get into the question of whether we're in a simulation. And I guess I just want to first say, this is the kind of thing that just sounds crazy to people when you just say it. But when you actually examine all the premises that lead to the conclusion that we can't know we're not living in a simulation right now, it's very difficult to see what's wrong about the argument or what's obviously wrong about it. So I guess we'll, we'll sort of start by building that argument up from, from its first premises, if you don't mind? Like, what is the first thing you have to accept in order to worry that we might be living in a simulation? Well, I guess, yeah, the first thing you have to accept is to accept the very idea that there could be a virtual world or a simulated world. In a way, that's what this book, Reality Plus, is all about. It's about, you know, philosophical issues that arise from thinking about virtual reality and from thinking about computer simulations. And one reason to believe that you know, virtual worlds and virtual realities are possible in principle is that we actually have them. We have them already in very basic ways. I mentioned the kind of text-based virtual world of like a text adventure, Colossal Cave, back in 1976. But of course, these days we have very complex video games with three-dimensional simulations of worlds that you can move about within. Most video games these days are on, a say, a two-dimensional desktop, but now developing fast is virtual reality technology where you put on a virtual reality headset and suddenly you experience a virtual world around you immersively, three-dimensionally, like you're actually in that world. And yeah, the technology is still primitive. It's mostly vision and hearing. For now, you don't have a good sense of touch or your body or taste or smell, but you can imagine this technology developing in such a way that in a hundred years time, maybe there'd be such an impressive simulation in virtual reality that it would be indistinguishable in every way from the physical world. A bit like the Matrix. You know, the, the Matrix movies are wonderful illustrations of this idea. 
that you could have an entirely simulated world. Once you had the technology to actually um, have an entirely simulated world indistinguishable from the ordinary world, then that just raises so many philosophical questions. Yeah, but one of them is this question of, yeah, how can we know? Could we be in a simulation like that right now? After all, if we were, it would feel just like this. Yeah. So I guess let's look at this first premise, the idea that it's possible to create a virtual world that is as complex and vivid as the world around us. Like We're not there yet, obviously. We have VR headsets and stuff that are interesting and video games. But the idea that we'll actually at some point get to a place where we have virtual worlds that are, for all intents and purposes, exactly like this world, that doesn't seem obvious to me. Like um, One thing I think about a lot is how our intuitions about what, what problems are hard to solve and what problems are easy to solve are sometimes way off. Like when I look at the hoverboard technology available right now, if you'd asked me 50 years ago when there are commercial airliners, how far off, like how far we are from like a $200 really functional hoverboard that you can go for hours on, I might have said definitely within 50 years. And here we are, you know, 50 years later where, where the hoverboards are like a couple propellers that, and you can fly them over a lake for like five minutes and, and they're super impractical. On the other hand, we put a person on the moon. On the other hand, I, I have a simple cough that we don't know how to remedy. You know, like we don't know how to cure the common cough. Like Robitussin doesn't work for me. It's like some of these problems that seem so simple, we just cannot solve. And other of these problems that seem super complicated, we can. So what persuades you, if you are persuaded, that really complicated VR is one of these things we will solve? Yeah, it's a good question. And I certainly wouldn't want to you know, suggest that these are going to be problems we're going to solve anytime soon, because many of them are really hard problems. Yeah, some people say that... Not that kind of hard problem, though. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of pretty hard problems out there. Um, yeah, a lot of people say this metaverse is just around the corner with full-grade virtual worlds. And, you know, we do have we do have low-grade metaverse. We do have low-grade virtual worlds just now. But yeah, some of the big challenges are, for example, bringing in the body, getting a sense of your body, you know, touch, eating and drinking in virtual reality or, or sex. You know, these are totally unsolved problems right now. I guess one thing is, as a philosopher, I don't need to be too committed to timelines. These things are philosophically just as interesting if they're 20 years away or 2,000 years away. But... Uh, I guess one reason for at least taking the idea seriously is that it sure looks like, say, the laws of physics in the universe are in principle, you know, mechanical and mathematical. And they look like the kind of things which in principle we can simulate. And there are already people who do simulations of physics at the very bottom level. And if the world is mostly made up of physics, as seems likely, then it looks like in principle, if you've got a big enough computer that simulated all of those processes, all of those particles, all of those forces that ought in principle to at least give you a very good approximation to the way the universe evolves. And in fact, simulation technology is gradually getting better and better. People have universe-level simulations, Earth-level simulations, physics-level simulations. I mean, yeah, they all, right now, they have to make plenty of cutoffs. Um, they just simulate one certain level at a time, many approximations. but I'd say there's at least good reason to think it ought in principle eventually be, uh, at least it would be surprising if it turned out not to be possible. Now, many surprising things happen. So I think you're right. We can't know for sure that this will happen. 
On the other hand, for many of the purposes of the book, it doesn't need to be something we can know for sure that this will happen. It's good enough that current science and technology suggest this is a serious possibility. That already raises the question, then how do we know this isn't happening to us already? So in the book, you make a really useful distinction between pure sims and biosims. Biosims, you should picture you know, Neo in the Matrix, where he has a, a biological body, a human brain that's hooked into a simulation, but the, the source of his experiences is ultimately still the biology. But with a pure sim, the idea is there's, there need be no brain there. The whole thing can be digital. It can just be uh, you know, a series of a bit of code or a lot of code that does functionally what a human brain does uh, with, with bits instead of neurons. And this is, and it seems to me this is a, a really important difference because with the biosims, with the sort of Neo and the Matrix or the, the old brain in a vat, the logic of those scenarios is not fundamentally that different from Descartes' worry that he's being deceived by an evil demon, which is, you know, hundreds of years old, where even if you accept it's impossible to know, there's also no, there's no reason to believe it. There's no really affirmative reason to believe that it's true. And, and seems the difference with pure Sims is this statistical point that, uh, that Nick Bostrom, and, and I, I learned in your book that actually it had been proposed by, by someone before that, actually, Hans something. Hans Moravec, that's right. right. Yeah. Article that, called Pigs in Cyberspace around 1992. Had a simpler yeah. version of it. Bostrom had a more complex mathematical version of it. Right. But um, what makes it different in kind from all of these other worries that the world may not be as, as it seems is that this version of the argument would give you potentially a reason to believe we're more likely to be living in a simulation than to be living in, in the base reality. So, and, and it does that with a sort of statistical argument. So can you talk a little bit about that basic distinction between pure sims and, and biosims and the new version of the simulation argument? Yeah. So I think of biosims as when you connect up, say, a, a biological brain to a computational reality. So right now, when I put on a video game, when I put on a VR headset, I'm basically a kind of biosim. I've got my, uh, my biological system is connected to this computer system. And certainly in the short term, any simulated world we're going to build with people in them, the people are going to be biological beings because we haven't built conscious AI systems yet, even as simulations. In the long run, though, we'll have full-scale simulated universes, which will include presumably simulated people as well. And there's an argument about whether simulated people could be conscious the way that biological beings are, but I would argue that they can be. If that's right, then once we simulate an entire universe, even without any biology, we'll just simulate the biology, then you'll have beings in them that experience the world the way that we do. And then what, uh, what Bostrom and Moravec bring to this is the added idea that, well, actually, in the history of the universe, we should expect that there will be many such simulations. Because first, it seems like it's at least possible in principle to create them. We, we talked about that a second ago. You can argue with that, but there's at least, yeah, let's say, 50% chance you could, uh, it'll be possible in principle to create these total universe simulations with simulated conscious beings. Then second, it seems if it's possible to create them, it seems very likely that intelligent civilizations will eventually create them. They'll figure out the technology They'll get to that point, and then they might have all kinds of reasons for running these simulations. 
to do science, to understand the world, to study their own history, maybe for entertainment, who knows what. So I don't know, let's just say, let's just put a 50% chance on if they're possible, then someone will create them. Then, you know, if both of those things happen, then it looks like then many simulations will be created. And you can argue that, uh, in fact, under those assumptions, there's going to be many more simulated universes than original universes, many more simulated people than unsimulated people. Maybe 99%, let's say 99% of all the uh, beings in the universe end up simulated. Then you say, what are the odds that I am one of the unsimulated ones in base reality? Turns out there's 100 times more beings just like me who are simulated. So under that condition, it looks 99% likely that I'm simulated too. So now I'll just mathematically add up the percentages. 50% chance these simulations are possible. Multiply that by 50% chance that if those simulations are possible, many of them will be created. And multiply that by a 99% chance that if many simulations are created, I'm a simulation. I don't know. I guess that's 0.5 times 0.5 times 0.99, 24.75%. Let's round that off to... Round that off to 25%. So that's my argument that, uh, and this is a version of the argument that Bostrom gave, originating in this argument that Moravec gave. To me, that adds up to something like, yeah, maybe a 25% chance that we could be in a simulation. So not proof, not necessarily even more likely than not, but a possibility, that a realistic possibility that we should take very seriously. This is a really interesting argument. And I, I want to get to the parts of it that are more or less plausible to me in a second. But one really interesting feature of this is that there could be signs that would make it more or less plausible that we're living in a simulation. Like for instance, the, you know, the notion of a glitch, right? Like most, most simulations, most video games, you know, occasionally glitch because, you know, that just not everything is functioning perfectly all the time. And by contrast, I've never seen the laws of physics in my universe glitch out. Like I've never seen something go up when it's supposed to go down. And people claim to have seen miracles and and perhaps, you know, those miracles happened and those were the glitches. But I have pretty good reason to believe prior to this conversation that no glitches happened. God wasn't playing dice with the laws of physics and, and so forth. So if I saw a glitch, would that be more reason to suspect? Would I nudge my belief up from, you know, 24.75% to like 25% that we're living in a simulation? And and what kinds of things might be signs that we're living in base reality? Yeah. I mean, I've heard it suggested that, you know, that the election of Donald Trump in 2016 was a glitch. <laughs> a sign we're in a simulation. Maybe the pandemic is such a glitch or at least a sign that the... Uh, that the simulators are messing with us. I don't know if I take those things, that kind of glitch, that seriously. Yeah, those things are improbable and unexpected. But then, you know, over time, you expect a lot of unexpected things to happen. So maybe uh, those things aren't really much in the way of decisive signs. We're in a simulation. Some physicists have suggested that maybe if we measure physics closely enough, we'll be able to reveal some signs that the laws of physics are being approximated. Um, maybe, you know, there's going to be some giveaways. They're going to do some, have some shortcuts in the calculations. Maybe eventually there could be evidence of that from, you know, close enough measurement of cosmic rays or something. Don't know we've gotten to that point yet, though. I mean, more basically, there are some things like, boy, the universe seems really big. It's an enormous universe. Why would simulators bother to simulate such an enormous universe when they could simulate one that was a lot smaller? So you might think, the size of the universe is some evidence, perhaps, that we're not 
in a simulation. On the other hand, you know, then you might say maybe actually all they need to do is simulate the Earth and the solar system very closely. And there's just a very low grade uh, simulation of the rest of it. Yeah, I call these sim signs the signs that we might be in a simulation and non-sim signs are the signs that we're, uh, that we're not. I think, you know, if you turn out to be, um, you know, maybe if you... The the uh, the economist Robin Hanson has argued that if you turn out if you if you're living a really interesting life or you're you know especially famous or something then you're more likely to be uh, to be simulated. So if you wake up and find yourself the president of the U.S., oh boy, maybe that's maybe that's evidence that I'm in a uh, I'm in a simulation. Maybe the fact that I'm writing a book about simulations, maybe the simulators will be especially likely to simulate people who are thinking about being in a simulation. The very fact that you're in this conversation right now about simulations, maybe that's some evidence. I don't know. Some of this is fairly fanciful, but we could actually try and test the hypothesis the other way some people think. Maybe try and overload the simulation. Run, try and set up a simulation within a simulation, for example, mm-hmm. really high computer power. See if we can get it to the point where the, uh, the computer in the next universe up glitches out. The fact, is, <laughs> the fact is, we'll probably, if we're not in a simulation, we will never ever get decisive proof that we're not in a simulation. And the reason is that any evidence that we're not in a simulation could in principle be simulated. So we're kind of left with probabilities here rather than proof. Yeah. And the, the same doesn't tr- hold true in reverse. Like we, we could get probably pretty persuasive evidence that we are in a simulation. If the, if the simulators wanted to reveal that, that we're in a simulation, like it, it could just be like, I think you used the example of the Rick and Morty episode where the huge, godheads are just visible in the horizon and they talk and then like they they need rick and morty to like do a rock song or something like that it's pretty hilarious episode but there could be a revelation right like they could just reveal to everyone equally that this is simulation and we it'd be hard to doubt because it wouldn't be like one jesus or muhammad type character saying i saw the truth the truth would just have been revealed to everyone. And, you know, I would have to think, granting that there are lots of simulations, granting a cosmos where there are lots of simulations, presumably some of those simulations, the simulators will want to reveal that it's a simulation. You know, it would be an enormous coincidence if they never wanted to reveal. But in the, in the base reality, obviously, it, w- it would never be revealed. So in some sense, like with, with each, each passing year that it doesn't get, get revealed that we're in a simulation, should I move the probability that we're in base reality slightly up? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, you're certainly right that if they wanted to reveal themselves, they could, you know, maybe they could um, turn the empire state building upside down in the simulation. <laughs> we see it floating in the sky. They simultaneously show us all the source code. Here's the source code that's running all this. They show us manipulating it. I mean, I don't know, maybe it wouldn't be proof. Maybe you could you could explain all this away by saying, "Man, someone just gave me some really good drugs with incredible experiences, or I just had the most amazing dream." But still, I think that would be pretty strong evidence that we were in a a simulation. But I don't know. I mean, the question is, and if you're in a simulation, is it to be expected that the simulators will reveal themselves? I mean, some simulators will do this. Maybe some simulators will want to be in touch with their creation, the way that some gods love to be in touch. But maybe there are some simulators who just don't care that much. Here's one thing I can imagine happening. Many simulations of the universe are done for the purposes of science. Maybe they run a million simulations all at once, just varying certain parameters like, you know, the speed of light or the strength of gravity. And they want to see what happens in these universes. And they set up a million of them overnight and they run them all to the end. 
And at the end, they come back and look at what happened and they gather some statistics for the next scientific paper. If people do that, if we're in that kind of simulation, we might expect that, okay, well, the simulators are never going to bother even looking in on us till the whole thing is done. You know, this is what sometimes gets called the silence of God in, in, religious, in religious traditions. We'd have a kind of silence of the simulator. If, we've got, if, if we're in a perfect simulation, almost by definition, the simulators won't be talking to us. So maybe we can get evidence that we're not in an imperfect simulation of this kind by not finding relevant glitches or communications. But again, we'll, we'll never get strong evidence that we're not in a perfect simulation because in a perfect simulation, you wouldn't expect to get that evidence. So there, there's one feature of Bostrom's argument which I found interesting, which is he relied on this notion of exact ancestor simulations, where he just imagined that in base reality, they're simulating exact replicas, you know, atom for atom since the origin of the universe, simulations of of what went down in base reality so that they're trying to simulate such that if this were base reality in the simulation, there would be an identical Coleman and David having this exact conversation down to the atoms somehow. And it seems possible to me that it could be possible to make simulations of possible worlds like ours, but impossible to actually accomplish that exact replica task because of sort of like the butterfly effect and getting the initial conditions right. Like we, we can't even actually replicate, replicate the weather and we may never be able to, it seems to me, replicate the weather so that I can tell whether it's raining on, you know, April 1st, 2000, 2552. But it would be very easy to create a simulation of a world with weather like ours that where it rains occasionally and it, it's windy here and less windy there. Um, so those are two separate tasks, right? Like the, the lifelike simulation task and the exact replica simulation tasks. So how do you, do you think the difference between those matters? Yeah, I think it does matter. And I think I agree with you on this one rather than with Bostrom. Bostrom does talk a lot about exact ancestor simulations, but like you, I'm skeptical that this is possible because we don't know exactly what happened in history. We don't know the initial conditions at the point of the Big Bang. We probably can't reconstruct exactly what happened to our ancestors even a hundred years ago. I mean, maybe there's something amazing we could do where we somehow reverse engineer from the current state of the universe and find the conditions in the past, but I don't see much reason to believe that's possible. So I think probably, yeah, exact simulations of what went on a hundred or a thousand years ago are, may well be impossible. But I think there's the next best thing, and that's like, yeah, when you talked about lifelike simulations or human-like simulations, maybe we can simulate humans in general and the laws of physics in general well enough that we get a way that things might have gone in generally human-like systems. If we know well enough what we're simulating, yeah, maybe we'll just run some different initial conditions for the Big Bang or for the the start of evolution or for human history and then get it going. And then I think you could probably get, you know, human-like simulations going, even if they're not exact replicas of our ancestors. And I think you could probably make the case that human-like simulations are all we need to get this argument going. It's not that we need it to be possible there are simulated beings out there who are exactly like us. They can just be kind of roughly like us. And I think the argument will still go through. Okay, so I want to deal with two of the most plausible veto points to this argument. And the first is that while while uh, the, ability, the ability to simulate, well, actually, let's let's start with the other one. Just the notion that 
we can't actually simulate conscious beings. So this is another way of saying the fact that I'm conscious, the fact that there's something it's like to be me as opposed to probably this table, the fact that there's the lights are on suggests that I'm not simulated because it's probably or definitely not possible to create consciousness digitally, to have pure sims, as you would say, that are conscious. What do you think of that idea? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, it's a reasonable point. We don't understand consciousness, so we don't know for sure whether or not simulated beings can be conscious. And this is part of the reason why I only went for a you know, 50% estimate that, uh, that this kind of simulation is possible. But if you ask me, my own inclination is to believe that simulated beings can be conscious. I mean, the, the, the main alternative to this, I think, I guess, would be a kind of a biology only first, biology only view, where you know maybe biological systems can be conscious, but you know silicon systems can't be conscious. You know, one thought experiment I've used to think about this is imagine replacing in neurons one at a time by silicon chips that function exactly the same way. On the alternative view, is consciousness going to gradually fade out? Is it going to suddenly disappear? I've at least argued that the most plausible thing in this case is consciousness would still be there at the other end. So at least a robot-style silicon analog of my brain would then arguably be conscious. And once that's conscious, then I think, yeah, silicon, it's hard to see why a silicon simulation of a brain couldn't be as well. So, you know, my odds are at least in favor of silicon systems being conscious, in which case I could at least get that 50% going for the purposes of the argument. But I do agree. This is something we don't understand and things could happen in the future to that could perhaps change our minds about whether simulations could be conscious or not. I think we should linger on that because that's a really interesting point, right? Like if you were to, and I want just people to picture this, I'm having open brain surgery and you're just, we've gotten to the point where we can take one neuron out at a time and replace it with circuitry that performs the same function, but not with biological material with something else that's compatible with me not dying, but performs the same function vis-a-vis electrical signals as the neuron was uh, playing. Like no one imagines that when you replace the very first neuron that I would suddenly become a zombie with no experience from, from the inside. So your argument is that we'll just replace one at a time until the whole brain is replaced by, by silicon or something. And then there are three possibilities. Either there was a discrete moment where I no longer became conscious somewhere in the process, which seems pretty crazy. It's just completely really unintuitive. Or I gradually became not conscious. Like consciousness just, it went from the lights on to, to the lights off the way a, a dial would. Or I remain conscious the whole time. There's just no change in my experience. And your argument is that number three is, is more plausible than, than either of the other two. But when I test that thought experiment against my intuitions, it seems to me that two, two and three are, are equally plausible. Like I, can, I can just as easily imagine that consciousness is a spectrum rather than a binary, and it just very gradually fades away, and there's no point at which you can identify the, the discrete transition from conscious to non-conscious because... I can just imagine a lot of a lot of things in life being on a continuum that we understand as a binary for simplicity, but but that doesn't actually track what's going on, right? I mean, I can. I mean, I think it's right that there are lots of cases where consciousness does seem to be on a continuum, even when we fall asleep at night, right? Or or when we wake up 
in the morning. Yeah. Like I ease into waking up in the morning sort of. Right. So you might say we've got a familiar process here. On the other hand, in these cases, the gradual disappearance of consciousness or its reappearance goes along with a corresponding change in behavior. As I fall asleep, I go from being very responsive in my behavior to very unresponsive and in reverse when I, uh, when I wake up. So I agree that that kind of fading of consciousness is familiar. But what we would need in this case um, is something much stronger. So I think by hypothesis, these silicon chips are functionally identical to neurons and they produce identical behavior. So really then what I'm imagining is going to have to happen is given that the behavior is identical, we're going to have to have consciousness gradually fading away piece by piece while the person is sitting here the whole time with roughly the same behavior. And they're going to be saying, I'm conscious. Yep, I'm conscious right now. Yes, I still feel that pain. I still see that pink house in front of me. I still have that smell of roses. So once they're going to be there even talking about their conscious experience, but gradually, piece by piece, their consciousness is going to be disappearing. And to me, that's a lot more bizarre. It means these beings are kind of out of touch with their experience. I mean, there is another line you could take here, which is to say, maybe it's going to turn out that we cannot even duplicate the behavior in silicon chips. Maybe there's something really special about neurons or something really special about the human organism where we can't simulate it in silicon. If that's the case, then yeah, maybe we couldn't actually get this whole thought experiment going in the first place. So it is, if you like, an assumption behind this whole thought experiment that we can, in principle, simulate the components of the brain. Right. Uh, But I guess the picture of consciousness slowly fading in not in a discrete way and in a, in a slow and continuous way while behavior remains exactly the same the whole time. That's only counterintuitive. If you think there has to be a link between consciousness and behavior, right? Like if you, which doesn't seem obvious and, and sort of has to be not true at some level. Well, I, actually, we, we don't know. This is just part, another way of stating the mystery of consciousness, I guess, is it's like this computer can do, Stockfish can play chess better than Magnus Carlsen. And I really don't think there's something it's like to be Stockfish. But when I interrogate that, I just run up against the mystery of, well, if Stockfish, this computer program, this software isn't conscious, then why... Why am I conscious? Why am I, why is my brain conscious but not my spleen, which is doing plenty of complex things with the same the same basic resources? You know, the atoms in in my spleen are no different than the atoms in my brain. But I don't think there's anything it's like to be my spleen, or I'm not aware of it. But there's just no there's nothing that marks a difference. There's no there's no fundamental difference we can see between flesh that creates consciousness and flesh that doesn't. And that's the fundamental mystery. We, we just don't have a theory of, of consciousness. And I've been very influenced by Colin McGinn's thesis in, in his book, The Mysterious Flame, where he basically says that just like other animals are, are just not built to understand many concepts, it's probably the case that humans are just not built to understand the concept of consciousness, that we... We just run up against what we're built to understand. An analogy I think of is it's like a chicken, you know, looking in a mirror, just like totally confused as to why the chicken in the mirror seems to be different than other chickens. And it can, you know, it just doesn't understand the concept of reflection and it's never going to. And if we could ask it what 
like what it's confused about, it probably wouldn't even ask the right questions. And how a chicken relates to the concept of reflection, we might just relate that way to the to the concept of consciousness, because it's there's no there's it's nowhere written that our brains are evolved to understand everything that a, a, a possible brain could understand. It would be an enormous coincidence if, if that were so. So, what do you think of that thesis, the the cognitive closure idea from Colin McGinn? Yeah, you know, it could be right. I just certainly don't have any argument that we can, any proof that we can understand consciousness. On the other hand, we've never seen any really solid argument that we can't either. So, I guess my attitude is it's pretty early days in thinking about these things. I mean, even if you grant that people have been thinking about these issues for thousands of years, you know, we're still gradually developing sophisticated tools for thinking about it. The science is just getting off the ground. The philosophy is still developing. So my attitude is the best way to figure that out is just to try to think about consciousness, to theorize about it, to try and understand it. And if at the end of the day, we don't understand it, then yeah, maybe it could turn out that that McGinn is right. Or if someone could give some decisive proof now that we can't understand it, then um, that would also be certainly a strong point in his favor. But I guess I haven't seen anything like that. And I'm kind of optimistic about the uh, the science of consciousness. Maybe this is just I'm you know a glass half full person by nature rather than a glass half empty person. But I think you know, there is a, a huge problem here. And you're totally right that we don't understand it. But I think we, we just have to try. I mean, you're totally right about the distinction between behavior and consciousness. I mean, this is at the core of the idea of the hard problem of consciousness, where the easy problems of consciousness are explaining behavior, which we kind of know how to do, even though we haven't done it all that well yet. But we know what we have to do, find some neural circuits in the brain and show how they can produce this behavior. But yeah, the hard problem is why is all that accompanied by consciousness and subjective experience? And that we just don't understand. I guess I see, I at least see some ways forward here. One way forward is to try to look for the fundamental connection between brain processes and consciousness, the laws of consciousness, if you like. And for me, they may, those may end up analogous to ultimate laws of the universe, like the laws of gravity or quantum mechanics or a unified field theory. Um, but once we treat consciousness that way, I think at least there's the potential for a science of consciousness to get off the ground. But yeah, but the, the mystery does run deep and you know, I could be I could be wrong. I think all of us should have some appropriate humility in the face of the grandeur and, and mystery of consciousness. But I think at least at this point, it's appropriate to at least hold out some hope for solving the problem. So one way in which the simulation hypothesis, the idea that we, we can't know we're not living in a, in a simulation, one way that could be wrong is if it turns out that once we understand consciousness, we realize we just can't build digital consciousness. That's one way in which it could be wrong a plausible way in which it could be wrong. Another plausible way is, is if it turns out it's possible to build digital consciousness, but we're just, it's so impractical that we'll never be able to do it. Much like we, I think we've, we both acknowledged sort of and agreed that it's, it's probably practically impossible to have an exact ancestor simulation, or it certainly could be, even though it's perfectly conceivable, it may just be practically impossible to do an exact ancestor simulation. Perhaps it's just practically impossible for for different reasons to build the kind of thing, a digital consciousness. It's just too complicated. Like we can sort of get halfway there and close, but we just never get there. There can be things we just never figure out how to do. So what stock do you put in in that possibility? I mean, yeah, it could be right that we can never build this. On the other hand, I am impressed by the fact that new consciousnesses actually 
come into existence, you know, every day, every minute, um, every moment somewhere on earth, you know, new people are born. And somehow there's a process by which they're born from, you know, from conception, through birth, through development. And you, yeah, you typically get a full-scale conscious being at the end of this process. So it looks like it must, it's going to be a pretty robust process given how well it works. And then I think, yeah, well, couldn't that be replicated in principle and in silicon? I mean, maybe again, there's something special about biology, but I'm a little bit doubtful about that. But yeah, given the fact that evolution has been able to produce this fairly robust system for producing conscious beings, all the more if it turns out that animals are conscious, as I think most people think, that at least that, you know, most mammals are conscious and maybe birds and fish and so on as well, then it looks like it's not that hard to get consciousness. Then it would suddenly be kind of surprising if suddenly in digital systems, it really was hard. Then I'd want to know what is the big difference between these digital systems and these biological systems that makes it so much harder for the digital systems to be conscious. What stock do you place in the idea that consciousness is a fundamental property of matter? Meaning, you know, every, every a single atom has some element of consciousness. What are the what does that theory have in its favor, and and what does that theory sort of have against it? Yeah, I'm very interested in theories like that. Um, my ver- my first book was called The Conscious Mind, and the subtitle was In Search of a Fundamental Theory. So the idea there was let's treat consciousness as something fundamental, like space and time and mass, then see if we can build up a theory of it. And then there's basically two possibilities. One is that it's separate, kind of totally separate. How does it relate to physics? One is that it's some entity or property totally separate from physics, but somehow in sync with it by some laws, which is what, what I call naturalistic dualism, that uh, yeah, you have two kinds of fundamental properties in the world. But the other idea, which is kind of really interesting, is that consciousness is somehow intrinsic to physics. It's right in there at the, at the basis of physics. Maybe physics, when it explains to us the laws of... Uh, of mass and motion and so on. That's telling us how all these systems behave from the outside, giving some mathematical characterization. But then, you know, Stephen Hawking said, what puts the fire in the equations? What are these things like on the inside? Well, maybe their consciousness is like the intrinsic nature of matter. And a view like this often gets called panpsychism. Everything has a mind. Pan for everything, psych for mind. I think it's very elegant. It really integrates consciousness with the natural order. So that's super promising as opposed to standing outside the natural order. It also helps us with our metaphysics of the physical world. The biggest problem for this view, I think, is what people call the combination problem. How is it that little bits of consciousness in microscopic systems like atoms, how does that add up to the kind of complex conscious state that I have right now? How does a trillion little bits of consciousness add up to one complex consciousness? Normally, you put together 10 conscious people, you don't expect to get a new conscious being as a result. So how does the combination process work in this case? There are a lot of philosophers working on that problem, trying to solve it. I haven't yet seen a solution that I find convincing. So what I've tended to think in the past before I read this book was, sure, we might be living in a simulation, just like we Descartes' evil demon might be manipulating me, just like I might be Neo plugged into the matrix. I can't rule this out, but at the end of the day, what difference does it make? I still feel things. I'm still fairly sure the people around me feel things, or I'm not going to live as if I'm the only mind. I think that's a bad practical bet. And um, sort of what difference does it make? How should we shouldn't act any differently if we were living in a simulation? 
However, upon reading in your, reading your book, I can find at least one idea that that if you take seriously the idea that we're in a simulation, you may we might want to do something about it, which is the idea that they might turn the simulation off, and the idea that whoever created the simulation might their decision whether or not to turn our simulation off might be contingent on certain things that are in our control as as a civilization. So do you think that there should be like a Manhattan project of people trying to figure out that start with the assumption that we're in a simulation and look at the mo- the likeliest reasons why the simulators would turn our simulation off that we might have control over and try to actually prevent that from happening? Yeah, it's it's really interesting and yeah, in some ways the problems here parallel problems that come up in religious traditions and theology, you know, thinking about the nature of, of God, trying to figure out what, uh, uh, what God's plans are from the world. Um, you know, the Old Testament God seemed to sometimes rain down fire and disaster on the world. People didn't want that to happen. So they tried to reverse engineer God, so to speak, to uh, we've got to make God happy. Another thing that could happen with the simulators is that maybe there's also analogous to traditional religions. Maybe the simulators have the ability to to copy the code of people and transfer them out of this simulation, perhaps into the non-simulated world, perhaps into other simulations, perhaps perhaps at the end of a lifetime, God takes your code, sorry, the simulators take the code of at least some be- some beings and preserve that code. That would then turn out to be a kind of, kind of life after death. If you wanted life after death, maybe then there'd be some motive for uh, reverse engineering what the simulation, what the simulators want. So yeah, I think it's worth probably putting some thought into those things as it would be to put some thought into theology insofar as you believe in God. But I think we also have to face up to the possibility that, you know, just as God may be quite inscrutable, the simulators may be quite inscrutable to us. Maybe they just got the simulation going and left it up and running. Maybe they don't want to reveal themselves to us. We can try and kind of um, see if we can psych them out, you know, like overloading the, uh, overloading the simulator the simulation, doing stuff that will uh, surprise them and so on. But I don't know. I'm sufficiently doubtful that there is a simulation. And then if, if there is a simulation, sufficiently doubtful that the simulators will reveal themselves that I wouldn't count on a project like this going anywhere. But yeah, it's probably worth some people taking it seriously enough, at least to figure out the uh, some of the options here. I mean, yeah, this is one of those cases where the logic of existential risk would would lead to the idea that we should care about this because if it's true that there's like a 20, almost 25% chance we're living in a simulation and some, some chance that the simulation might, they might pull the plug on the simulation and some chance that we could prevent them pulling the plug on the simulation by doing something, by understanding this better, although that's how you cash that out is really kind of nebulous. Then it's like if there's a 0.1% chance we can save the whole world doing something, then existential risk people would argue you should devote a certain amount of resources to it. It's hard to see how I could actually sustain, like really sustain this idea. But yeah, this gets into something which is interesting. Like I can imagine devoting a person devoting their life to the risk of climate change the risk of nuclear war, especially given that people have actually died from, from nuclear bombs before. Even super intelligent AI is, is a vivid threat, you know, as the most abstract threat of those three is still the most vivid, uh, is still vivid enough that I can see a psychologically normal person sort of devoting their life to worrying about it. But the notion that we're living in a simulation 
right? Like to take that seriously day in and day out and be on the team of existential risk people that like uh, Toby Ord or Max Tegmark like funded or Elon Musk is like funding or something to wake up every day and say, okay, we're going to think about, we're going to accept the possibility we're in a simulation and think about ways to avoid them pulling the plug would seem like synonymous with mental illness almost. It does have a kind of a slightly ridiculous flavor to it. And yeah, compared to those other projects, I mean, 20 years ago, thinking about super intelligence, thinking about, yeah, the possibility of AI taking over the world seemed similarly frivolous to a whole lot of people. And I guess maybe to some people it still does. But over time, I think people have started to take that possibility much more seriously as the technology develops. So I can imagine something similar happening with the simulation idea that as the technology develops, people will take it more seriously. But yeah, it will it does always have this science fiction flavor to it. And it probably would be just destabilizing to spend your whole life thinking about this. Although that's it. People spend their whole lives thinking about God and thinking about how to, you know, maximize the goodness of our existence in light of God's existence. Maybe this wouldn't be so different from that in principle. I could imagine some very stable people just going through that. But yeah, it would look a little ridiculous from the outside. And even such a person would have to say, well, you know, I can't be certain we're in a simulation and I can't be certain that, uh, that the simulators will reveal themselves. So this would have to be done. Probably it would work best as part of a team effort where collectively, yeah, okay, well, we should be devote, devoting a huge amount of our resources to preventing climate change and to enabling social justice and to preventing nuclear war and to preventing AI, preventing you know AI destroying the world. But yeah, but somewhere in that set of resources, there should be people collectively spending some of their time on thinking about other existential possibilities like simulations. I mean, there are some complexities here. You might think, for example, once we know we're in a simulation, that to some extent reduces some of the worries about existential risk, because we know that even if we disappear, there will still be the world of the simulators. So one very serious form of existential risk is if we're the only form of consciousness in the universe, then us getting wiped out would eliminate all the consciousness in the universe. If we're in a simulation, that's less likely. It's going to be more like a multiverse where... There are going to be other conscious beings out there. Nonetheless, we do really care about humans. We care about, yeah, about our species in, uh, in this world. And, and if you want humanity still to exist, then, yeah, insofar as you think there's a threat from the simulation idea, we should deal with it. Yeah, but that said, it's not just there are maybe there are threats from the simulation idea, but there are also potential, potentially massive benefits, um, not just the idea of life after death that we talked about before. And you know, we could be backed up in various ways, but maybe even... It also gives you the idea that reality is bigger than we thought. There's more to reality than we thought. It's a bit like discovering there are you know, other countries or other worlds. In principle, there are other universes that we might, for example, be interested in exploring one day. And if I was really taking the simulation idea seriously, I'd be thinking about uh, you know, what possible mechanisms are there by which we could actually be able to reach some of, the, some of these other worlds. Again, if it's a perfect simulation that may be impossible, but you know, holding, if you want to hold out some hope that we're not in a perfect simulation, then that has the potential downsides that you mentioned, but it also has some pretty strong potential upsides as well. All right. So let's shift gears and talk a little bit about the possibility of living a good life and a real life in virtual reality. So let's just say in X number of years, we figured out the problem of, of tactile sensation in virtual reality and the visual immersions are perfect and lifelike and the sound is, you know, exactly like the real world. So that when you plug into the virtual reality as a, as a biosim 
it's every bit as compelling as the matrix, but you have a choice about whether to how, how frequently to go into this, when to go out, you know, perhaps you can sort of plug in for a lifetime and choose to forget that you're, that there are options, or perhaps you just go into it like playing a video game and it's a perfectly lifelike video game, but you know, in the back of your mind or in the forefront of your mind that, that it's not real. And, you know, the better the video game, the more it engrosses you, just like a good movie, you just stop thinking about who you are for a few hours. Whereas a bad movie, you're just sort of always remembering that you have that thing later today. So we've solved all the practical problems of VR. And now there's a huge culture war type scenario where people are arguing about whether you can live a good life in VR, right? Whether your relationships with other people plugged into the same reality with you are real. Whether your relationship with pure sims in that world are real whether you can live a good life or, or, or whether you should go all natural and just stay out of the, the VR world entirely. What do you have to say about that? Yeah, I'm sure there are going to be a lot of arguments about this as VR develops. And yeah, some people think that VR has to be somehow some kind of escapism, fiction, or just an illusion. And I think if you have the video game idea as your model, then there are always going to be limits on that kind of VR, you know, games are by their nature kind of an escape from day-to-day life. But, you know, the kind of VRs I'm really interested in aren't especially video game-like. They're more like social virtual worlds where people live all aspects of their life, where they build relationships. You might be employed in a, uh, in a virtual reality. You might, uh, you might build communities. You might struggle to... Uh, to overcome oppression, to solve problems, and so on. Many of the things that really give meaning to a non-virtual life, I think a lot of that can, in principle, be present in a virtual world. So if we imagine not just you know, one person going into one virtual world at a time, but people moving collectively to virtual worlds. I mean, this already happens, say, on the, uh, on the internet, where people set up communities on the internet that are very meaningful to them. I could imagine this happening you know, to a much greater degree once really serious virtual world technology as possible, people deciding to spend more and more time of their virtual in the in virtual worlds, perhaps moving at the very least moving kind of part-time, spending time part-time in virtual worlds where they build communities that give their lives a lot of meaning. But yeah, perhaps eventually some people could move full-time to virtual worlds if the technology develops to enable that. I don't see what in principle would be less meaningful about that than life in non-virtual reality. I mean what does the meaning in your life come from? From you know, relationships to other people, from knowledge and understanding, from goals, projects, and achieving them. I think you could, all do, you could do all that in a virtual world. I mean, maybe there are some things you won't get from a virtual world if you really want contact with nature, which some people really care about nature. Maybe virtual worlds by their nature are going to be artificial, so you won't be in contact with nature. If you want contact with a long history, maybe virtual worlds won't have that. If you really value the physicality of the universe or the physicality of your body and so on, then maybe there are going to be deficiencies in VR as well. So I don't think it's like it's automatic. I'm not going to say VR is better than physical reality across the board. I think it does depend on your goals and where you find meaning. But um, I guess I don't think it's, it's not irrational to choose to, at the very least, it's not irrational to choose to, to spend a considerable portion of one's life in VR, and maybe eventually, for many people at least, it could turn out to be the right choice. 
what kinds of reasons do you imagine people having for choosing a VR life over this life? I think a lot of different reasons. Um, one thing that's worth worth saying is, you know, for many people, if your access to physical reality is great, then, you know, virtual reality may have a high bar to meet. But yeah, for a lot of people, access to physical reality isn't all that great. Um, you know, take uh, aging people, for example, or disabled people who may have relatively limited access to, uh, to physical reality, uh, just the ordinary physical world. In fact, virtual worlds like Second Life have seen really major participation from aging people, disabled people, oppressed people who maybe, you know, can't live the full life they want to live in physical reality for various reasons often find meaning in these virtual worlds as well. So I think if you're in a situation where, for whatever reason, life in the physical world is not treating you all that well, then virtual worlds can open up, can open up possibilities. But then even beyond that, I guess, uh, what are some of the other possibilities include, for example, you know, new kinds of experiences and new kinds of worlds that go beyond, say, the physics of this world. You, know, you can fly in a virtual reality even now with wings, you know, in a way in which you can't really do in the, in physical reality. You can imagine all kinds of new transcendental possibilities opening up. Oh, another, another thing um, that I think about sometimes is space in VR, you know, space in the physical, space in the physical world is very limited, at least at the moment on earth, material goods in the physical world are, are very limited. And a whole lot of, you know, injustice arises from the scarcity of material goods and of space. That's where a whole lot of inequality comes from. In virtual worlds, there's this feature, potentially at least, of abundance. You know, like material goods are trivial to duplicate. Take in one house, you can just uh, duplicate it digitally, just like that. Now you've got another house. Space is maybe not free, but but very, very abundant. You know, you can create a new planet in VR without, uh, without too many difficulties. So I think that abundance opens up interesting possibilities for things like equality, distributive justice, social justice. I don't think it's a panacea. You know, I mean, there's this idea out there in the tech world that, yeah, in VR, everyone's going to have a, a mansion by the beach. You know, that's not going to suddenly get rid of, uh, get rid of inequality because, you know, the forces of inequality run very deep. But I do think that this, uh, the prospect of uh, this kind of abundance at least has interesting possibilities for making virtual worlds attractive. Yeah, it, it does. To the extent that these are biosims, these are, you know, homo sapiens here in base reality plugging into a VR. Is, would, they, would that be parasitic on people in, in base reality sort of somehow maintaining their bodies? And like, what, what do you envision, practically speaking, here? Is it, is it make Neo in the pods or, or, or what? Yeah, it's a big issue. I mean, there are so many different models, and I, uh, it's a, it certainly is a, a big issue. Yeah, what, what happens when pilot. the base reality, uh, base reality body needs to poop? Is what I'm asking. But yeah. <laughs> you know, who's to say it could be like Neo in the in the pod? Maybe the uh, maybe the body is just inside this tank that takes care of its every need, feeds it nutrients as necessary, uh, gets rid of bodily fluids and substances as necessary. Um, I don't know. Works it out as necessary. I don't know. This is science fiction, but if we're, if we're going to a version of this centuries in the future, uh, who knows what? That's one possibility. Another possibility is, okay, we're not talking about full-scale spending 24 hours a day in VR, but maybe just spending 12 hours a day or 18 hours a day or whatever in VR and coming out uh, of VR, at least to 
to uh, to eat and drink and maybe to sleep and and so on. Now, maybe that sounds weird. On the other hand, is that so different from the lives that many of us live already? Spending, I've probably spent twelve hours a day in front of my computer already. And yeah, I I take some time off to uh, to do to do other things. I could at least imagine that kind of relationship to VR. And yeah, keeping the physical body healthy is going to be super important insofar as we're insofar as we're still embodied in our biological bodies. I guess the third option, at least in the long term, is the possibility of, act- of actually uploading to the simulation completely so that we're no longer biosims, but pure sims, where we are ourselves digital creatures. You know, this gets illustrated in um, in some science fiction scenarios like that, um, you know, the episode of Black Mirror, Black Mirror San Junipero, where yes, a couple idea, yeah. towards the end of their lives actually uploads themselves completely mm-hmm. to the simulation and live their life that way. <laughs> That's one way of uh, getting rid of the problem of the uh, the physical body. You now have a digital body. Yeah, with with there you get into some some really strange thought experiments, some some parfit like questions about the continuity of identity. If you if you upload, is it even me anymore? Right, or is it just a replica of me that has no continuity with myself right now? Is it, is that the same as dying and being born again, or or is it not? That's a very deep and interesting question. Yeah, my view is as long as you do it continuously, it's a bit like the brain replacement we were talking about before. If you continuously replace your your brain parts with digital parts and stay conscious throughout, maybe that's the best way to guarantee it's still you at the other end. Right. But even in the case of biosims, whether it's matrix-like or just sort of more mundane, like plugging in some of the time, do you picture people maintaining their base reality identities in VR? Like, are you still David Chalmers in the VR or are you like some other person that you want to be? Are you are you a woman in the VR? Yeah, I think at the level of like personal identity, that like the continuation of one being through time in the sense in which we, there's one a certain kind of sense that, yeah, a basic sense of identity in which it's arguable that we are the same person our whole <clears throat> lives. When I move between countries, when I undergo gender transition and so on, there's some basic sense in which I'm still the same person. I guess, well, in that sense, I would say I'm still the same person when I enter VR. Yeah, the biosim hanging out in the VR is continuous with the person in physical reality. On the other hand, we have these notions of social identity, which are so important to us, both you know how we feel on the inside, what we identify with, how others recognize us and treat us, how we want, how we choose to express ourselves. And yeah, I mean, those aspects of social identity are just as important as personal identity. And yeah, social identities, I think, are going to get just all the more complicated inside uh, inside VR. Um, you know, we already have people who have different social identities in different parts of their, of their life, maybe in work, uh, in play with their family. But, but what, what, what about the, the, the brass tacks of like how you look? how you look and what you ask to be called. Do you uh, envision people just like, I'm going into the simulation, you know, I'm not hot on earth. I want to be hot. I'm going to be super hot in the simulation. I'm going to go by this. I never liked my name. I'm going to go by this other name. Do you picture people making those kinds of choices? Yeah. And I don't need to just picture this because it's already happening. You know, there are social worlds uh, in VR where uh, people try on all kinds of different identities. I mean, this got really going in a big way with, I guess, Second Life, which is not a full-scale virtual reality. It's just on a two-dimensional screen, but people go in there and in Second Life, people try on all kinds of new identities. Yeah, different bodies with a, with a different gender, clothing, different clothing choices, different names, different occupations. And now there are 
yeah, now there are virtual VR worlds like a uh, VR chat is probably the most popular one, but yeah, people get the craziest avatars to express all kinds of aspects of their identity. Some people go in with real names. And actually, when I enter virtual worlds, mostly I stick with kind of boring avatars that look a little bit like me and I use my name. So I guess that's a continuous social identity. But yeah, there are many people who try on entirely different, entirely different identities. There are disabled people who go into, into VR. Some choose avatars that reflect their disabilities. Some choose avatars that yeah, have entirely different abilities. So yeah, I think this is very this is very complex. You know, social identity is complex enough in the uh, in the physical world, but I think it's just going to get all the more complex. With, yeah, it's at least open to people to associate quite different social identities, maybe even different social identities in different virtual worlds, especially when people are experimenting with different aspects of their identity. Maybe VR, virtual worlds for some people provides a realm where they can experiment when they're not quite ready to do that in physical reality. So I can see the ethical application of this to to people's who, who whose lives are marked by suffering in in base reality but i'm you know i'm thinking of just people that are perfectly happy in base reality but just want to be much happier just like normal people that have good lives that have enough money that they're not worrying about where the next meal is coming from but they have the i guess normal level of problems with meaning and happiness uh, that even a well-to-do person has, and this gets into uh, the, the 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 sort of experience machine thought experiment, which I've talked about with uh, Robert Reich on this podcast. And you know, it, it, I think very much in the spirit of your defense of virtual reality as as valid, I've always thought that when you say the experience machine is just this idea that you could plug into a virtual a fully immersive virtual reality that is just much better. And it's, it's uh, quote unquote fake, but you're having, you know, you can just have any experience as vividly as I'm having this experience right now. And you can live your whole life in there and you can, you know, whatever your idea of a great life is can be programmed. Like you can, there can be no disease. If cancer is what you fear, there's no cancer. In, in the experience machine, if pain is what you fear, there's there's no pain. If pain is a, a necessity of happiness doled out for the right reasons at the right times, then that can be a part of the experience machine. All of, you know, it, just depending on what happiness is for an individual, it can be just given to you directly in, in the experience machine, including experiences we would think of as, as suffering. Right, because suffering can be a component of of happiness for people in the right context. I think it was, was it was it Nozick who initially proposed the experience machine idea, and and reject. Yeah, he he said even in this case, even in the best case scenario, even in the case where the experience machine is not just not just having orgasms and getting drunk and not paying the consequences, right? Where it's a deeply ethical and happier version of a life, we should still reject it. That That's all always, you know, never made sense to me because it just seems like what matters to me is conscious experience at the end of the day. If everyone could plug in to the, to the experience machine, I think if you reject that as immoral, it's possible you're just not imagining clearly enough how good it could be for everyone to be in the experience machine. So does that strike you as right? Or what do you think about that classic thought experiment? Yeah, it's interesting. I think, I guess I have one major concern about the experience machine, as Nozick describes it. 
And that's that it's entirely scripted in advance. Mm. Life in the experience machine, as he describes it, is pre-programmed. You get in there and you get to live out a script where you have these wonderfully meaningful experiences. And maybe you get to be the world champion in your area of concern. And maybe you get to have great relationships and a wonderful family and achieve all this justice. But it was basically all scripted in advance. And you're kind of, it's a little bit like you're passively living out a script. And yes, you did get to have great experiences along the way. It felt great. But the question is, how valuable is that? if it doesn't really correspond to something that you did. And maybe the thought was, if it was scripted, it wasn't really something that you did or that you achieved. Mm. So this is the, po- the point, I guess, where maybe I'd be on Nozick's side and say, okay, yeah, we really want to actually do these things, not just have, the ex- have it feel like we did these things. We want to actually do these things and achieve these things. We want to be in a world where things are somewhat uncertain and still manage to get the right outcome. And I would argue that can actually happen in, virtual worlds, like in most social virtual worlds you go into now, we still have free will. We can make choices. We can construct our own lives. It's not scripted. It's not pre-programmed. But maybe that's a difference between the kind of VR worlds that are, uh, that are actually coming now and those ex- extreme thought experiment that for me means even if you do, even if you reject the experience machine for this reason, those reasons don't extend to, uh, to virtual worlds. Right. You can still, maybe even if life in the, in the experience machine is at some level meaningless, life in virtual worlds is in a corresponding way meaningful. Right. And life in virtual worlds is probably bound to run into many of the same problems with unhappiness and suffering. Maybe not all, but many, precisely because people have free will. You know, your wife can cheat on you in virtual world and she can hurt you in the same way. Um, whereas in the experience machine, a scripted life is presumably only going to come with the kinds of suffering that promote your overall happiness in the long run, which may rule out a lot of, a lot of unwelcome experiences. My question about this is this, this notion of scriptedness. So if the subject in the experience machine doesn't know that it's scripted, that's kind of a puzzling concept in itself because... You know, if I were in an experience machine right now, you know, it feels like I'm thinking and deliberate, deliberating and choosing, but everything that's going on is, is preordained. I'm not sure that that would actually be bad. And I'm not sure it would be, you know, so long as I didn't think it was scripted, I'm not sure it would be actually any different from, from reality in, in the sense that, you know, I'm not, I don't think I believe in libertarian free, free will. I'm, I'm aware at some level that my brain, which is the locus of my experience and decisions, is as subject to the laws of physics, whatever they are, as everything else. But I just choose not to think about that. I don't even choose. It's, it's hard to think about. Like, it's hard to keep in, in your brain. So I just live my life, make my choices. I don't worry too much about the fact that I, I'm not the author, the deep author of anything about myself. And I live as if I had free will, essentially. And so in the experience machine, wouldn't I be doing the same thing even if it was scripted? So does the scriptedness not really matter? Is that not a real objection? You certainly have the experience. Your experiences would be the same. You mentioned this case of, yeah, your partner is cheating on you. I wonder how you think about this case. Two cases where your life from your point of view goes exactly the same. And you believe you want your partner to be faithful. You believe they're being faithful. In one world, they are completely faithful. In another world, they're not. They're cheating on you all the time, but you never discover this. You believe your whole life 
that they're faithful and so you live a happy life. And then which world is better? I don't know. One view would be, well, it felt the same to me, so they were the same. But the other view would be, no, look, it really matters to me that my partner is actually faithful, so even if I never knew. And that fact just makes my life worse. I don't know what you think about that case. That's a, yeah, that's a dizzying case because who does it matter to? I guess when you're asking that question, like it, it matters to me to, to like this version of myself, that possible world, one possible world is better than the other from my vantage point outside both of those worlds. But in what sense am I the, the, the person that we're talking about in either of these possible worlds, right? I, I think I'm, if I'm standing outside both of these timelines, I can recognize the guy in there is equally happy from his perspective. But from my perspective, outside both of those timelines, I'm disturbed at one of those realities um, and not the other. So I don't think I could say that in some sense, uh, one is better for me, but they're, neither is better for him. I'm not sure if that makes any sense. I see. Whereas I guess I think that, yeah, if I really want my partner to be faithful, then if my partner is not faithful, that's bad for me, even if I never experience it as bad, even if I never find out. You know, this is what people think of as the conception of value in life, where value goes beyond our experiences to include things like desire satisfaction, the world being as we want it to be. That has value to us, even if we'll never know. Maybe I care mm-hmm. about things happening in the distant future that, you know, our descendants have good lives, even though I can never know. Maybe I even care about the past. So I think we can care about things that go beyond our experiences. And maybe that's a place where this fully experienced base version of the experience machine could fall down. Right. Would that not also be relevant to the simulation hypothesis too? Like, does it take something out of this world if it's if, if there's a simulator that flipped the on switch and that's what we call the Big Bang or whatever? Or is it the case that, well, it doesn't matter because... Either way, we're conscious creatures trying to increase human and animal flourishing and pretty much everything stays the same. Yeah, I would say in the simulation hypothesis, A, we're conscious creatures and our experience is the same. But I would also say B, all that stuff we see out there outside of our experiences, the physical world, that still exists if we're in a simulation as well. It's just that, you know, those processes, the trees and cats and dogs and kills and so on. They're all digital processes. They actually exist out there on the simulation. I think so that gives it an extra degree of reality. Yeah, my view of the simulation hypothesis is if it's true, all these things are still real. They're just, uh, they're just digital. And I think that's part of what then, part of what the basis of meaning is in our world. There's having the experiences. There's also having a world around us. And I would argue that that digital reality could be just as valuable and could play just the same role in fulfilling our desires as in a non-digital reality. I mean, if you had really specific desires, like just say it was one of your desires, you'd be living in base reality. I want to be in base reality. That's super important to me because I value nature so much or something. Then if we turned out to be in a simulation, then you'd lose something that you valued. But if it's, if your values are just, you know, to live a life in a community and to, to even, you know, be interacting in certain ways with the world, around you, then I think you can do that just as well in the, in the simulation scenario. It's interesting in the same way that I pity the guy whose wife was cheating on him his whole life, even though he had no idea. I think I do sort of pity the version of myself that is not in base reality, as opposed to the version of myself that is in base reality. If only because both people have always assumed tacitly that they're in base reality. 
So just the the fact of being radically deceived about the nature of the cosmos is sad to me. And I, I guess, you know, I, I think there actually is something to, to this notion of, um, you know, even if you never experience it, there is something to care about in terms of, you know, whether the guy has been cheated on his whole life, even if he never understands that fact. I feel there, there is something, even if nothing about my experience turns on it, about having been radically deceived about my place in the cosmos as opposed to understanding it. Yeah, that's, that's interesting and fair. Although I guess I think many of us may be radically deceived about our place in the cosmos even before you're getting to the simulation ideas. Like maybe you grow up, when you first grow up, you think you know, your local town is all there is or maybe the earth. And then we eventually discover we're in some tiny corner of the universe. And already that's at least, boy, I didn't know that. That's at least a big discovery. I don't know if you were deceived. Then maybe we discover we live in this world of quantum mechanics with weird little evanescent wave functions underneath everything. And yeah, the cosmos looks different from what we thought. Maybe we believed there was a God and that turns out not to be a God. Or, or vice versa. We didn't believe there was a God that turns out to be a God. Then we could be wrong about the cosmos. So I guess I think there are so many ways we could be wrong or could be deceived about the cosmos. For the most part, I mean, that is, I think, meaningful, especially to those of us who, who really care about these cosmic questions. I guess at the same time, I don't think this is the locus of most of our life's meaning. We can still have a meaningful day-to-day lives with our families and friends and our projects and so on, even despite being very wrong about the, uh, about the cosmos. So I guess I'd like to think that, yeah, this could to some degree affect the, uh, you know, the meaning you find in your life. Some people find being in one corner, suddenly being just one tiny corner of the universe destabilizing. But, you know, for most of us, it's reasonable to say that life goes on and the main meaningful aspects of my existence are still there. Well, life will have to go on in my corner of the simulation and uh, in your corner, dear listener. We have reached the end of this conversation. This has been interesting, unsettling. And if you're interested, the book is called Reality Plus. It's like 500 pages. It's, it's a tome. And there's a lot in there that we did not cover in this conversation. And there's also just, a, you know, if you're interested in any of these related questions in philosophy. This book is a really good entry point to the historical, the history of ideas in in philosophy, because I've always thought it's sometimes better to get into the history of ideas via a modern issue. It can just be kind of a more vivid way to start learning about Descartes than to simply go into Descartes cold. So I really recommend this book to people with any interest in, in philosophy um, in epistemology and metaphysics uh, and so forth. So uh, again, the book is Reality Plus. And if you, uh, if David, you want to point my listeners anywhere else, such as a Twitter page or a website, now would be the time to do so. Yeah. Um, well, I don't use Twitter actually, but my I have a website. Uh, if you just search for my name, David Chalmers, I'll go to conch.net, C-O-N-S-C, first five letters of consciousness.net. You'll there find a page for the book with a bunch of details, including some beautiful illustrations. This one bonus in this book is it has great illustrations by an illustrator, Tim Peacock, who put together 57 great pictures of some of the classic thought experiments we've been talking about. Uh, Robert Nozick and the Experience Machine, Descartes wondering about reality, Plato's cave, um, and so on. So I'm hoping that you know, this kind of thing can help 
philosophy come to life for some people. Totally. All right, David Chalmers, it's been fun. Thanks so much for coming on my show. Thanks, Coleman. It was a pleasure to talk about all this, all these interesting issues with you. If you appreciate the work I do, the best ways to support me are to subscribe directly through my website, colemanhughes.org, and to subscribe to my YouTube channel so you'll never miss my new content. As always, thanks for your support.